Good morning, church. Today I will be reading Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 18. Now at Zistra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Royden. And uh, thank you, Christchurch Midrand. It's wonderful to have a home away from home. Um, I haven't been in South Africa since before COVID. And um, the reason for my visit now is, well, you're probably aware that uh, there's great um, trouble in the Anglican communion around the world as many churches surrender uh, to the um, spirit of the age, the uh, and uh, many churches, many church leaders wanting to embrace the LGBTQI plus movement and say, look, it's all right to be a practicing homosexual. You can, or even the ordained in our church, you can be a bishop, um, you can be anything. And um, yeah, it's just so contrary to the Christian faith as we know it in the Bible. So there's been a big conference in Kigali uh, these, this last week and uh, uh, REACH, which has been part of this uh, uh, movement in opposition of these new forces, uh, been very well represented from the beginning and was very well represented at this conference. It's kind of reached crisis point in my own Diocese of Perth. Uh, we got a new Archbishop about five years ago. She was put in place by a little committee who wanted her to move uh, the church uh, in Perth or in Western Australia uh, to um, embracing the LGBT movement. Uh, not being the first uh, woman Archbishop in Australia, she hasn't wanted to uh, bust everything up on her watch, so she's been very cautious these last five years, but she's made it very clear that the iron has entered her soul and that at this synod in October she will be pushing for the blessing of same-sex marriages and uh, everything that goes with that. Of course, underlying all that is a much bigger problem, and that is the place of the Bible in our church. And there has been a drift away from the Bible in many Anglican churches around the world, and that's what's giving rise to the present crisis. 
Anyway, that's not what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, although connected in a little way, the the extreme secular uh, culture which is developing in Australia and other places has no place for God. Perhaps there is no God. Well, that is what many are saying. Uh, and others who I think probably in their heart of hearts believe that God is real, when push comes to shove, they're not quite sure. There are so many uh, anti-voices. So I'm drawn to this passage we're going to look at this morning. Paul healing this uh, crippled man in Lystra, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey, and Lystra... There's no city there now, but uh, it's fairly close to the epicentre of the recent earthquake. Anyway, you've you've read the reading, and I just want to ask God to help me to unpack it and to help us all make sense of it and to build it into the fabric of our, our life with you, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So disasters come and go um, for us, I mean, who we witness them on the screen in the comfort of our homes, although for the people who are involved in them, uh, life is never the same again. And the Turkish disaster will not so quickly pass from our minds. Their suffering goes on. Uh, nor will Ukraine, and while our conference was on in in, in Rwanda, and we remember something about the Rwanda's uh, terrible, troubled history. Uh, war broke out again in Sudan. Now, some of these things our thinking can accommodate because we can see very clearly that they are a result of human wickedness. But the earthquake, uh, well, we're no longer allowed to speak about an act of God um, because, as I say, officially the Western world no longer believes in God. And the new, the big S secularists, I call them, and the new atheists, well, they see it as just more evidence that there is no God. Well, others question whether God can be good, and many are just bewildered. So I want to take up these questions this morning. Two questions. Whether that God is there, is he there? And is he good? Well, let me start back in 1755 when an earthquake destroyed the city of Lisbon in Portugal, killing between 30 and 50,000 people. And the thinking of Europeans changed. And that changes with us still. Tom Wright uh, says that it was the beginning in Europe of an intellectual revolt against Christianity and the idea of a loving God. A loving God would not allow such suffering. Now, Christian philosophers went into action to defend God, uh, but many thinkers were even further enraged by this. The French philosopher Voltaire wrote a poem called poem on the Lisbon disaster, ridiculing attempts to explain the way. And can you then impute a sinful deed to babes who on their mother's bosoms bleed? 
Was then more vice in fallen Lisbon found than Paris where voluptuous joys abound? Was less debauchery to London known where opulence luxurious holds the throne? And so it went on. It's quite a long time. In French, of course, but it's been translated into English. So Wright says that the worldview of the West changed to become what he calls Epicurean. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher from before the time of Christ. He didn't deny the existence of the gods, but he said that they had their own issues to deal with uh, and they are uninterested in the affairs of human beings. In other words, we're on our own. And the only reasonable philosophy he taught uh, is to seek happiness. And Epicureanism, dressed up in a garb of modern science, uh, says right, is the philosophy that, that rules the modern world. You can believe in God if you want to, you can believe in anything you want, but don't let it intrude on politics or anything in the real world. Well, when we woke up from the news from Turkey of an earthquake greater than anything in their history, although I'm not sure it was, uh, to the increasing body count, pictures of collapsed towns, rescue workers working in the freezing cold, a baby drawn out of the rubble still attached to uh, its dead mother. Well, I don't know how it affected you, but yeah, I was bewildered. What are you doing, God? Um, and of course, it is just another knockdown argument of the new atheists, indeed of atheists at all times. Uh, the amount of evil and suffering in the world uh, makes the idea of a loving, all-powerful God uh, ridiculous. One reason the attempt to justify God was so ineffective was because it had lost touch with the God of the Bible. When you go to the Bible to find an answer to suffering, one thing you don't find is God trying to justify himself. Nor do you find him saying he'd like to help but he can't. He's God. He says it over and over. I am God. And I, I do what I choose. I make peace and create disaster. I form the light and create darkness. I am the Lord who does all these things. That's from Isaiah 45. Which is a chapter which is contemplating God's plan to overrun and devastate the world uh, with the armies of Persia at that time. God has always been the chief enemy of humankind. God, well let me put it the other way, we have our plans, but God has his plans too and often they collide. And yet in the same place in Isaiah where God is speaking of this terrible thing which is about to overrun most of the civilised world, he insists that he is righteous and that one day the whole world will know it and acknowledge it. Well, righteous means that he is good, and he works to make things good. 
And we call him good because he works for our ultimate happiness. Maybe he's not making us happy just now, but we believe that ultimately our destiny is happiness because God is at work, at work in the world and work in our lives. Now we only know this because he teaches us this in his word. Uh, what we experience going on around us is often very different. But we trust him because he has given us life, he has created our world, everything we have is from him, and, um, well, also because of the man on the cross. But when your house and your belongings have just been swept away in a flood, it's not so easy to trust. So these two missionaries visit uh, the town of Lystra and they heal a paraplegic. Cause to stir led to a misunderstanding. They've just done a miracle and the locals think they must be gods and they prepare to offer them sacrifice. And uh, because of the language problem, uh, Paul and Barnabas don't wake up to what's going on until it's almost too late. And what we see next is the collision of two different understandings of the world. The worldview of paganism and that of Judaism, which became the worldview of Christianity and later on of Islam. Well, pagans believe in many gods, and many spirits, different parts of the world, different aspects of life are controlled by different gods. You can still experience a day if you visit India. Hinduism is pretty much exactly the same as uh, the religion of the Greeks and the Romans at that time. There's a god of love and a god of war, god of the harvest, god of the ocean. And most of these gods are not particularly interested in human beings. They've got their own struggles. Certainly not interested in our happiness. But you can easily offend them. And in that system, of course, there's no difficulty in accounting for evil and suffering. You probably upset one of the gods or an ancestor. And the way out of that is to offer sacrifice. So Christians believe that there is one God who created the universe, everything in it continues to hold it in existence. And the main alternative to that idea today is the idea that there's no God at all. The belief of atheism and secular materialism. Lawrence Krauss, American uh, cosmologist, physicist, he was debating with a young pastor in church in uh, Perth Town Hall and he joked, people used to believe in many gods, then they believed in one God and now we believe in no gods. <laughs> and, um, well, there's an infinite difference between one and none, let me tell you. And a joke doesn't settle it. One God explains the existence of the universe, its harmony, its laws. No God explains nothing except suffering and evil. One practical issue involved in all this is who do you thank? A lot of people feel thankful when blessings come their way. We, uh, we, I worked for the last 18 months in a city called Geraldton, just 500 k's north of Perth, and it's a rural kind of city. And they had just experienced their best ever harvest in their history. And um, I spoke to one woman 
And, uh, well, they, they took me out while the harvest was going on. One of the blokes in the church said, would you like to come out and look at the farm? I said, yeah, I'd love to. So he put me on a harvester. And, and in an hour, um, we, we took off five tonnes of wheat. Um, never stops. They just have this, this big bin that comes up beside them. The big arm goes across and they empty their tanks of wheat and, and this thing just goes on forever. It seems after it was all over, I, I said to the wife of the, of the farmer, I said, how much did you get in the end? And she was embarrassed. <laughs> she was soft voice. She said, 50,000 tonnes. <laughs> now that was a bumper harvest. There'd never been anything like it. And we organised a Thanksgiving service. And uh, very few people came. Because people are not thanking God anymore. Sometimes people do feel thankful, but they give their praise to nature, which they spell with a capital N as though it's a God. Or call it Mother Nature, a goddess. Well, our missionaries would have been just as horrified at that as they were at the idol worship of Lystra. It amounts to worshipping the creation rather than the one who created it. And it robs God of his honour. It's the essence of idolatry and it's evil. Anyway, Paul's answer to the idol worshippers, but it seems to me it's also a very good answer to the atheists of today, is that God has given himself a witness. He's given rains and fruitful seasons doing good and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I guess what Paul is saying is that the amount of good in the world shows that it's in the hands of a good God. And it's worth thinking about that argument today. Of course, Paul is very aware that there is also a lot of evil and suffering. Just 30 years Late, uh, earlier, I think it was um, in the year 18, Jesus would have been, oh, Jesus would have just been turning 20, I guess. Uh, Turkey was devastated by an earthquake, which a Roman writer described as the worst in human history. Uh, a lot of the people there in that little town when Paul and Barnabas came in would have remembered that very clearly. So, Paul is not ignorant that there's plenty of evil around, so he must be saying that there's more good than can be accounted for if there is no God. Well, the truth is that God likes to give us good things, most of the time, to most people, and even to people who don't believe in him. He's a generous God. The atheist, he thinks there's too much suffering, and that rules God out. But Paul says there's a lot more good than bad and that rules God in. Well, it's worth asking whether it's true, what he's saying. Uh, Scott Peck, an American psychiatrist, uh, wrote a book called The, Lo- the Road Less Travelled. And he says the thing that brought him, as a medical doctor, from not believing in God to Christianity was the amount of grace he observed in the world. One example he gives is He says, most of us carry uh, bacteria germs of serious illnesses around in our body. (laughs) I was going to demolish a a bathroom and I was 
I was riding a bit close to the edge of the law and um, I had to knock a bit of asbestos out and so on. And my son-in-law was freaking out and saying, you know, I'd get mesothelioma. I decided to do a little bit of um, um, searching on the internet and uh, there was a study done in the United States in an area where there were no factories and no natural asbestos um, and they tested about a thousand people and they found that on average each one of them had a thousand asbestos hairs in their lungs. So you can't get away from it, will you? But not everybody gets lung cancer. So Scott Peck says, there's much more good than can be accounted for if everything evolved by accident. I agree, uh, and and I'm interested now looking around just to spot examples, clear examples of that. Now, to me, the clearest example is our bodies. In our natural uh, healthy state, our bodies are pain-free. Why should that be? Now, pain is useful. It tells us when something's wrong. And you can see why natural selection would have favoured it if evolution was true. But why would it eliminate chronic pain? Lots of people live with a chronic pain. It doesn't stop them from having children. It doesn't stop the race from propagating. It doesn't give us any survival advantage, the fact that our bodies are generally pain-free. In our natural state, we're hardly conscious of our bodies and we can get on with stuff. When we feel pain, we know something's wrong. And we can often trace the cause and we're often able to fix it up. And even if we can't, well, we know that pain is not normal. There's probably an explanation and somewhere or other a cure. So the body in its normal state seems like it was designed for happiness. And the whole of modern medicine stands on that foundation, which only makes sense if there is a good creator who has designed things to be that way. So you see, there is a witness. That's what Paul says. There is a witness. And in fact, there are many witnesses, and I think if you look for examples of your own, you'll find them. Another example that has always occurred to me when I was living in Musenberg, I used to walk to the college past Musenberg Primary School and when the kids were out at playtime, there was this hell of a racket going on, kids running everywhere, shouting, laughing. It it was a, a scene of happiness, if I can put it like that. But when you see one kid over in the corner on his own and he's crying, well, you know something is wrong. But you also know if you would go and fix that up, he'd be happy again with all the other kids. So it seems like happiness is the default state of children. It's the things that happen to them that muck things up. And that only makes sense to me if God is real and that he is good. Well, evil and suffering are horribly real and if God has allowed them, uh, then he's got some explaining to do. But it's important to see that they are not his original design. They're invaders. 
They're spoilers of another, an otherwise good creation. And that's the Bible's teaching. It's also how we experience things. Evolution says that suffering is normal and will increase until we're all extinct. But in fact, there's much more good than evil. And therefore, we should believe in God and thank him and want to know him. Well, that's the first thing we, we learn from our reading. But of course, the people of Lystra were given a remarkable miracle as well as that. Now, paraplegic, there were lots of them around then. Uh, there are lots of them around in Africa today. We had a student come from Tanzania. I think he, he had polio as a child. He, one leg sort of just hung by his side. His foot faced 180 degrees backwards. He walked on a pole. He'd cut out of the bush. He was pretty good with it, I might say. But one of his classmates took him off to visit an orthopedic surgeon in Perth uh, who said he could fix him up. And the student offered to pay, and, but then he left the college and, uh, I mean, he's still willing to pay, but I had to go and take this chap into Kruzskiwa Hospital for his pre-op. And uh, the professor of orthopaedics was big bloke and he just picked this guy up like he was a piece of meat and sort of put him on the table and a room full of students, he started explaining to the students what he was going to do and how he was going to fix it up. I didn't see much of him, but I thought he was a pig of a man. <laughs> anyway, anyway, one of the students put his hands up and he said, no, it won't work. Well, the prof wasn't used to that. <laughs> Why not? He said. And he said, well, all the muscles have atrophied, they've all wasted away and they will never regenerate even if you did turn his leg around you'd never walk again uh, and the students all discussed it and they decided at the end that was right so the operation was off the chap Paul and Barnabas met in Lister had been lame from birth, his muscles were beyond recovery even with today's medical know-how. So it was an unmistakable miracle when he stood up and walked and the locals got very excited. They figured that Paul and Barnabas must be gods. Uh, there's, there's something behind that. Uh, there's an ancient myth. Um, the Roman poet Virgil tells how two of the gods, Zeus and Hermes, disguised themselves as humans and visited just this area where this took place. Uh, they visited the area looking for hospitality and they got the cold shoulder from everybody except a poor couple who took them in to their home and shared what they had. And then their shack was miraculously transformed into a temple of Zeus and the unfriendly town sank into the swamp. Well, they weren't going to make that mistake again. So the priest of Zeus came out to offer them sacrifices. Now you've got a collision of worldviews. The community has just experienced a great good. They want to acknowledge it, but they're ignorant of the giver. And these missionaries are calling on them to give up their idolatrous beliefs and worship the living and true God he made the world and everything in it and has just healed this guy. Well, it caused a division. Some believed, some didn't, and eventually it turned violent. You can read the rest of the story for yourself. So Paul did many miracles in Jesus' name, and of course Jesus had done hundreds more before him. The Jews never denied that. 
the Jews who were against him, I mean, there were many who weren't. But the Jews who were against Jesus said he was a sorcerer, he was working with the devil. Well, there's a great difference between what Jesus did and what ancient sorcerers were said to do, and that is that Jesus never did anything to harm anyone. All his miracles were to help and to heal. Sorcerers were feared, like Sangomas and witches are today. People believe that if you have magical powers, you'll use them to hurt people who upset you. So that's another reason why Christians believe that God is good. When he came into the world as a human being, he only did good even to those who wanted to kill him. So just summing up, we believe God is good because we experience so much good. I mean, this is not the only reason, of course. There are dozens, scores of reasons why we know that God is real. But this is just one. We experience so much good. Most days, most people most of our lives. We experience that God is good because our default state is happiness. So we hang on to our faith when disaster strikes, believing that these sort of things are intruders. The Bible tells us that even death is an intruder on God's good creation. And we believe that God is good because not only is it, well, we believe that he's there and also that he's good because when he appeared as a human being, he did good and he did things, well, things that only uh, God could do. He made twisted bodies whole and he wants to heal our twisted souls. And then he led the way through death, dying himself. Promises us a great future. You know, at the beginning of his ministry, he announced the coming of the kingdom of God. What's that? That's the coming of a world in which there will be no more evil and no more suffering. The night before he died, he spoke about the kingdom of God. He said he wouldn't drink of the cup until he drank it new in the kingdom of God. And if you read the book of Acts right through to the end, you will see that Paul, the apostle, in jail in Rome about 62, is still talking about the kingdom of God. That's what we're believing for. God is going to fix everything up. That's what it means when we say he's righteous. And he invites us to enter that kingdom now. Promises us restored bodies when he comes to make all things new. Well, if all this is just a story, then I have to tell you we're all on the way down. There's no hope. No Look around, look at all the religions of the world, look at all the philosophies and ask yourself, is there hope? Is there hope for me? Is there hope for this world? Is there hope for the future? And there is only one hope, and that is the man who, when they killed him, God brought him back to life again. So the best you can do, if all this is just a story, is conjure up some artificial hope for yourself, affluence if you're lucky, Peace of mind, if you can do it. Seems to me suddenly everybody's talking about mental illness. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a happy world, does it? Pursuit of happiness, but uh, to tell you a lot of people are not doing well at that, even with all the blessings of our scientific age. Or perhaps you can hook on to some great cause 
that'll keep your mind away from the dying that one day will claim us all. But Jesus was good. He did good. He proved that death is not the all-powerful grim reaper. He defeated death and goodness has a future and so do we if we chuck in our lot with him. So thank you for listening to me. Very great pleasure to speak to you. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful to you that we can see your goodness. Uh, your reality is your reality is beyond question. When your Spirit gives us eyes to see your goodness, your grace, your kindness in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, and as we look to that cross, that great declaration of your love and your presence with your people, your solidarity with sinners. You're coming near to those who run away from you. Your rescue of those who are hostile towards you. We praise you that your goodness and your presence is an unmistakable reality. Father, we thank you. And we ask that we would take this wonderful news, this wonderful hope of you making all things right in the coming kingdom. We would take it out into the world, wherever you've placed us. Help us to be ambassadors of Christ and to proclaim the message that you've given us. Be reconciled to God through Jesus. God is real and he's good and he's come to bring you home. Please, Father, make us ambassadors, your ambassadors, by the power of your Spirit. We pray these things in the precious name of our King, our Lord Jesus. Amen.